Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the context in which we are living today. Through Christian scripture and our various traditions, what support can we gather, especially as white folks, in finding our mutual interest in movements for liberation? My name is Reverend Liz Carney. My pronouns are she and her. I am an ordained Presbyterian Church USA pastor serving as a chaplain on the occupied ancestral homelands of the Cowlitz Indian tribe in so-called Longview, Washington. I'm a member of the Surge Faith Organizing Team, and I'm feeling so grateful to be with you today. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, settler colonialism, the cis-heteropatriarchy, anti-Semitism, ableism, and every system of oppression that stands in the way of our collective thriving. We are called to show up and disrupt these powers and principalities wherever we find them, especially through the Christian tradition. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. ground us in the love of the divine, which will never let us go, I want to open with a blessing that has nourished me recently from Held, Blessings for the Depths, a collection of blessings edited into a gorgeous hold-it-in-your-hand-sized volume by Anna K. Bladell and M. Jade Kaiser of Enfleshed Spiritual Nourishment for Collective Liberation. This blessing is called Another Truth, and it was written by Molly Hausch Gordon. Yesterday, I saw a photograph of the way we see the sun move across the sky through the year. Yes, I know we are the ones who move, hanging on for dear life, but just follow my metaphor. If you take a photo of the sky at the same time from the same place every week for a year and put them all together, they create an image that is the same as our symbol for infinity. Mobius strip folding back on itself. When I try to imagine the infinite, 
I tend to see a line moving upward forever and am terrified of the void into which it must surely carry me along. But the ancients looked at the sun and saw another truth. How time and matter and space double back again to find us. How nothing is lost, all caught in winding embrace. And even if we cower before the infinite, we are held within its looping arms all the same. Beloveds, I hope you can feel the infinite lover holding you as we open ourselves to this text today. It comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 21, part of what some call Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples. I'm resisting the centering of patriarchal language in this text by using they, them pronouns for God. Let's tune in to what was most on Jesus' mind as he prepared to be separated from these friends, some of the people he loved the most. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the parent, and they will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees them nor knows them. You know them, because they abide with you, and they will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my parent, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my parent and I will love them and reveal myself to them. My white evangelical Christian upbringing taught me to view Jesus as a lesson in perfection. Someone kind of like me, I guess, but not really, because every time he encountered a scenario where I would have messed everything up, Jesus did the right thing flawlessly, without feeling, and as if everything came easily for him. Or so the story went. I don't understand, I didn't understand until later, how much this perfection lens for Jesus is steeped in white supremacy culture, which furiously punishes mistakes and frailties, because what place could being a messy human have in a capitalist system where I am only worth what I can produce? That's one thing that's been so freeing for me about being a part of the Surge community, where it's a core value to recognize that we all mess up. As white people, we are going to make mistakes when doing racial justice work. It's inevitable. 
Our hashtag failure lab theme for this season we call Eastertide is a great space for us to ask, how can failures of all kinds in these texts and in our own stories help us move through and beyond the limits and harms of perfectionism into a world where we can be our full, unedited, messy, and glorious selves. I've read this text so many times, but this time around, through the failure lab lens, I wondered for the first time, as Jesus says goodbye to these beloveds he has journeyed with for three years, was he feeling like a failure? They'd just had their last meal together, and he had washed their feet, telling them that he knew one of them would betray him to Rome in the days to come. Surely Jesus must have hoped that his movement efforts would have amounted to more than this. Facing his execution by the state, about to be handed over to the cops by some of the people he had trusted the most, unable to get his friends to understand what was really at stake, no matter how hard he'd been trying to explain it all. After everything he'd been leading them to do together to counter Rome's scarcity narratives, all the feeding, healing, speaking truth to power, and building beloved community, what must it have felt like to see his beloveds fraying at the edges? to watch as so much of what he'd helped to build seemed to be crumbling before his very eyes. The failure lab lens makes everything about Jesus' words to his beloveds here hit different for me this time around. Rather than viewing Jesus as this emotionally detached and disembodied presence who's patting the disciples on the head and saying, Oh, little ones, I know you're frightened, but don't worry. You won't be left alone. Stop being so stressed out. I actually imagine Jesus saying these words to his friends in part to reassure himself that this movement didn't begin with him and it won't end with him either. These promises of comfort and the continued presence of this advocate who will be with them forever, even after Jesus is gone physically, might very well have been what Jesus needed to hear to get through this moment and to fortify himself for the horrifying moments he knew were coming. Maybe the person who needed to hear these words from Jesus the most was actually Jesus. Fourteen times in this passage, Jesus says the word, you, which is actually not the best translation because every instance of you here is actually plural. It would be better to say y'all instead. If y'all love me, y'all will keep my commandments. I won't leave y'all orphaned. I'll come to y'all. 
On that day, y'all will know that I am in my parent and y'all in me and I in y'all. And doesn't that little change in the text matter? Like a lot. <laughs> in saying these words to his community, Jesus was reminding himself that even as his state execution is about to end his physical part in the liberation movement that had started with his Jewish ancestors before him, it has been and always will be the collective that holds the work. The advocate that Jesus is promising, the spirit of truth, they will abide with y'all and they will be in Y'all, Jesus says, I was never specifically the point. I can hear Jesus saying, I've been part of showing y'all this work of liberation lived out more fully. But plan A has always been for the world we long for to be built by a community of beloveds who are committed to belonging to each other more and more every day. Just a few verses before this passage, Jesus actually said, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I'm going to the parent. As our friends at Enfleshed Liturgies have said of this chapter in John's Gospel, the disciples, so caught up in the particularity of Jesus' enfleshment of God that they struggled to recognize it elsewhere, were encouraged to see even the limitations of Jesus' witness. And maybe in this moment, Jesus is reminding himself that even his limitations are good news. For it means the work didn't start with him, and it won't end with him either. I wonder if Jesus is showing us here how to sit with our feelings of failure long enough to let them become for us a pathway to the truth, that the work of liberation is always held in community. And in this way, it can never, never die. I don't know about you, but I have needed this word lately more than I can say. Not only am I personally in a season where I've had to scale back many of my organizing commitments to accommodate a new job. But every time I turn around, I'm also witnessing my friends facing burnout and overwhelm in holding their own responsibilities. Capitalism is relentless in pushing us past the brink of our limitations. And that all feels like it is simply in the background of the collective trauma we experience every time one of our beloveds is lost to the violence of the powers that be. When our beloveds are murdered by the state, 
like activist Tortuguita, who a recent autopsy shows was shot at least 57 times by police for their resistance to the building of Cop City in Atlanta. When our beloveds are shot by individuals formed by white supremacy, like 16-year-old Ralph Carl, Ralph Jarl was, a black boy shot in the head by a white man when Ralph got the address wrong for the house he was trying to find. When our beloveds die by suicide, so often the ultimate result of a society that refuses to provide what every body needs to live and be fully affirmed exactly as they are. As I ask myself what all my own work has meant and if it matters, as I hear my friends grappling with these questions too, and as grief upon grief batters us with each daily news cycle, I wonder if we can stand with Jesus here. I wonder if we too can allow our feelings of failure and our tender human limitations to be a pathway to the same truth Jesus seems to have been reminding himself of. That building the world we long for is the work not of one of us, but of all of us together. Taking turns, passing the baton to the next person, trusting that God is alive and at work, and dare I say, resurrected, beyond even death in our communities. This is not to invalidate Jesus' impending grief, the fear he must have been feeling in this passage of what was coming. And it's not to invalidate those things in us either. It's actually to give all the grief, fear, and trauma a space in which to be held with the promise that somehow, some way, the Spirit will still be at work among us, telling the truth about where community keeps building, oh, telling the truth that where community keeps building a world where we can all belong to each other, God, who is love, is alive. Because as our friends at in fleshed liturgies again have said, God is the reality that binds us together across time, space, and geography, keeping us from ever being alone in facing even the hardest things. When we are acting in love, there is nowhere and nothing that can separate us from the great cloud of witnesses, the lineage of saints, the power of collective solidarity. Amen.
call to action for each of us this week is simple. I believe deep in my bones that we build the world that can hold and affirm and care for all of us with the tiniest little Lego pieces of our everyday choices. So this week, to practice that the work of liberation didn't start with us, spend some time learning about or connecting with an ancestor, biological or chosen, who gave you something that helped bring you into movements for liberation. Put their picture somewhere, you'll see it every day. Light a candle for them as you pray for what you need and what you are longing for. And if they are still alive, write them a letter to say thank you. And then to practice that the work of liberation doesn't end with us, ask someone for help with something that is feeling exhausting or overwhelming or just too plain much for you this week. Resist individualism by reaching out for support where you feel stuck or tired or alone. In short, look back to find strength in the ones who've come before you and look forward by asking your beloveds to show up for you in some way that will help you get through. The good work didn't start with you, dear ones, and it won't end with you either. Thanks be to God for that. Thanks, as always, for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all, and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for the Surge Faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. Next week, we'll have a resistance word, from the incomparable M. Jade Kaiser, one of the co-founders of Enfleshed, who you heard me going on and on about today. I promise you, you won't want to miss the nourishing word M. will bring us next week. And finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. We appreciate you so much. Again, I'm Reverend Liz Carney, and being with you in this way is something I treasure. I want to close with a poem from Violet, a seven-year-old activist who says she wrote this poem with her mama. She read it aloud at the microphone in front of the Atlanta City Council to resist the building of Cop City in Atlanta. And if you need a jolt of hope, find the Instagram, Instagram link I'll include in the show notes in the transcript and watch the video of Violet reading this herself. She's one voice in a new generation joining the fight to resist oppression. May her words of resistance remind you that love lives on, that even death cannot stop our movements, 
and that in this way, resurrection is real. There is a magical forest. It has magic swirling all around with plants and mushrooms to learn about, animals, bugs, and discoveries abound. The police don't like this forest. They want more power. They want to make us cower. Said, no more playing here so we can clear the trees and pioneer a city of fear. Friends of the forest said, no. They came in droves. We gathered, played, and planted. Some friends even made the forest their home. This made the police angry. They attacked the forest time and time again. Then a loved one was killed. Manuel Tortuguita Paez Taran. We've occupied, called in, and marched, wrote letters, and shouted in the streets, Don't, don't, don't cut down the trees. Mayor Dickens, listen to what we really need. Solidarity and awareness growing. More friends coming and going to defend the Atlanta forest. No cop city here or anywhere. Please save Wilani. Oh,